Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Associate Pastor Ian Mulraney. Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land. From the wadi of Egypt to the the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. We are back in Abraham. Yay! Alright, it's been a few weeks, but hopefully... You all remember, if not, I'm going to do a little quick recap of what our storyline of Abraham has been so far. First of all, he's not Abraham yet. We are still walking along with Abram. If you remember, God had called Abram to live uh, out in Ur of the Chaldeans with his father, Terah. And God had told him that if he leaves his land and goes to the land that he's going to show him, he's going to give him descendants and land, and he's going to be a blessing to all the earth. And so Abram goes in faith, he takes his family and his uh, nephew and his livestock, and he travels miles and thousands of miles to the land of Canaan, to the promised land, which is modern-day Israel today. Um, But when he gets there, immediately there's a famine, and so Abram goes where there's food, down to the land of Egypt, where he makes some bad deals and bargains and... um, betrays his wife, so that way he ends up getting paid for having her live in the palace of the king of Egypt. Um, The king of Egypt, because of God, 
has revealed that Sarai is not able to be in his harem because she's married to Abram. So they kick him out of Egypt. And after he comes back, he separates from his nephew Lot. Lot gets kidnapped by all these different kings that are around. Um, and Abram gets a mercenary band together from his people. He goes off and fights them. He meets Melchizedek, like Scotty told us about. And now the king of Sodom wants to reward Abram for helping save all these other kings. Abram has come in battle and performed this heroic deed. So the king of Sodom is like, you can take all these goods and this treasure and these livestock. And Abram says no, um, because he doesn't, the king of Sodom is a bad guy. He doesn't want the king of Sodom to be, he made him rich. And so where we are today in our chapter is immediately after meeting with the king of Sodom and Melchizedek. Cool. <laughs> Got it. Got it, yeah. It's only been three weeks, but a lot has happened. But but before we kind of talk about what Abraham is going to do and the things that happens and the weird images in this chapter, I just want to remind everybody what today's lesson is going to be, and that's this. When it's hard to believe God, look to Christ. That might seem paradoxical at first, but hopefully by the end of this sermon you will understand. But just keep that in mind. When it is hard to believe God, look to Christ. Okay. So, let's just kind of quickly go back through the beginning part of our story here. So remember, Abram has just gone... He fought a battle, rescued all these people that had been taken by these kings. And the king of Sodom wants to reward Abram, and Abram turns him away and says no. And this is what happens. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me, since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. You can leave it there, Kyle. Abram did the right thing by turning away the king of Sodom's gifts and rewards. Abram is saying, I don't need the, the bounty from this evil man because God is the one who's taking care of me. He does the right thing in the moment. But we look at what the pagan gods that the king of Sodom offers, and we look at the pagan gods that Abram has walked away from, and the things that Abram would have if he were to have accepted the king of Sodom's gift is power, is money, Livestock, glory, good times. And then we look at what God has asked Abram to do. God has had Abram walk away from his home, from his family, from comfort, from having a land of his own. And now serving God means turning away a gift of wealth and power. And so it seems... Uh, or you can go back. Well, that's fine. Next slide. Never mind. 
So it seems that there's high cost for Abram serving God and low reward at this state. But God keeps making all these promises, even in the beginning of this chapter here. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. I am your reward. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to give you everything you need. But if you're Abram, this feels sort of like an empty promise at this point. Remember, you've traveled thousands of miles away from everything that you knew. You get to this land that God has promised you, and there's a famine immediately. There's been no payback on anything that God has said he would do for Abram at this point. It just seems like empty promises and empty words. And for context, we are, from the beginning of our story to now, 10 years have passed. Abram was 75 when he left Earth. You know, if he's supposed to have kids, that biological clock is ticking, right? <laughs> His life clock is ticking. And so here he is, an 85-year-old man with no land, no descendants of his own. As far as being a blessing to the whole earth, the king of Egypt hates him. Um, he's now turning away alliances with the king of Sodom. What is God's big plan in all this? Is God just a trickster or doesn't actually have the power to fulfill anything that he says he will? And so what does Abram do? He takes his honest thoughts and feelings to God. Abram brings his concerns to God and in a way, his complaint. Abram says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is not even a relative of mine, a servant born in my household. Abram is not shy about his feelings to God. And remember, earlier this day, he's done the right thing. He still serves God. He still loves God. But he brings his concerns to God. And what does God respond with being criticized by Abram? This. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer, will not be your heir. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And then he takes him outside and shows him all the stars in the night sky. There's no light pollution, you know, 4,000 years ago. So you can see thousands upon thousands of stars. And he tells him, count those stars if you can, because that's how many your descendants are going to be. And Abram believes him. God's response to being criticized, to having a complaint brought against him, is not anger or wrath or malice or saying, you can't ask questions or criticize me. But instead, he goes deeper with Abram in relationship. Instead, God takes Abram saying, I'm having a crisis of faith. And God says, well, have some reassurance then. I want us to know, oh yeah, there's just, I love this picture, so that's why it's on every slide, but <laughs> uh, you can hit that again, Kyle. I want you to know 
that God is big enough to handle all of our complaints, all of our questions, all of our concerns and frustrations. And I hope you know that. I don't know if you've ever felt that it's not the pious or righteous thing to bring anything to God when it feels like you have anger or frustration or sadness to God. But here's the thing. He's God. He's bigger than all of us, and he's big enough to handle a few questions or complaints that we might have. Usually, in my experience, I've found when people tell you that you're not allowed to question God or the Bible or the church's teaching on things, it usually seems it's because they don't know the answer and they don't want to have to deal with that discomfort that they don't actually know things. But God is big enough. God does have the answer. And so, if you have these doubts, these questions, these unfulfilled promises, if you are like, I don't know if you're a real God, or why do you let bad things happen, say that to God. You're allowed to. And when you do, you don't get punished, you don't get rejected, you don't get silenced. I found that when you do that, you will go deeper in your relationship with God because you're seeking out to know him more. And he's going to come through with that. And I feel 100% comfortable saying we're allowed to do this. We're allowed to have a vision different than God's and allowed to say we don't think his plan is the best. Because Jesus does this, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he's going to be crucified, Jesus is in the Garden praying. And we see that though he is God incarnate, his will is different than the Father's. Christ in human flesh has a different will than the Father's. And he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Jesus' will is not the Father's. Jesus, the night before the crucifixion, doesn't want to get crucified. He doesn't want to have uh, sin and wrath poured out upon him on the cross. He expresses his concerns and his desire to the Father. And so we are allowed to also. We're allowed to bring it, anything that we are concerned with, anything that we are doubting or questioning to God. Amen. Thanks. <laughs> but if we're using Jesus as our model, we also have to be ready to sometimes hear the answer that we don't want. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And I think if we have that posture, like posture sometimes is everything. There's a difference between putting our middle fingers up to God and saying, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do what I want. And, then, and saying, I really want to do something the other way and I don't know why you're telling me to do things this way, but I'm going to trust you. I hope that's clear, that like sometimes our attitude matters too, that like, if you actually are approaching God with a heart that you want to understand it, even if you don't, that can make all the difference. And so, this is our first example of like when faith in God is hard, we can look to Christ as our example. We can look to Christ as just how we are supposed to interact with God. So Abram tells God, that's great that you're my shield, that you're my reward, but... 
what the heck, you told me that if I came here, I would have descendants, I'd have kids, I'd have land, and I don't have any of that, God. So he gets shown the stars and says, this is how many your descendants are going to be. And it's beautiful. Abram believes him and is credited to him as righteousness, and that's a whole other sermon. But before God can get away with just, like, maybe this is another hyperbolic promise that he's making of like, oh, no, no, look at all those stars. That's how many your descendants are going to be. Trust me. God actually does something that's a little strange to us, but he goes a step farther to confirm to Abram that he's serious. Before we get to that, though, there's a little intermission that happens. So I just want to cover that quick and then kind of get back to the final part. So, um, so I'm skipping around in the text a little bit. But Abram is told to get these animals. And after he does that, it says, As the sun was setting, Abram was fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and a dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So, why this is important and why this matters is Abram expresses his concerns. He's saying he's getting a little impatient. And so, in part of this going deeper with Abram in relationship, Abram pulls back the curtain a little bit. Or God pulls back the curtain for Abram. He says no for certain. And then explains to him the Exodus story. God is telling Abram that, all right, yes, you are going to have descendants, and they're going to be as numerous as the stars. But there's something bigger going on here that I have in the works that I want you to know now. That your descendants are not actually going to inherit this land. Your kid's not going to inherit this land. Your grandson's not going to inherit this land. Your great-grandson. It's going to be a lot of generations, but they will down the road. But before all that happens, they're going to be slaves, they're going to be mistreated, but they're going to come out with justice and wealth. And if I was Abram, I would be a little confused at this, right? <laughs> uh, okay, so these promises seem to have some stipulations with them. And you might be asking, well, why do they have to be enslaved? Why does this other nation have to be punished? Why? Uh, why are the offspring I'm going to have have to be mistreated? And Abram doesn't get an answer here. He gets two promises. He gets that they are going to inherit the land and that Abram will go to his ancestors in peace. The in peace is kind of a, uh, a euphemism that we might not be familiar with, but essentially what it means is in peace is He's going to be buried in a, a grave of his own. Um, King Josiah in 2 Kings is killed in a battle, and yet it says he's buried in peace because he's put in his own tomb. Right? Being killed in battle is not dying in peace, but he's buried in peace. And so Abram gets this little glimpse that you're going to have 
at least a tomb here in this land, even if you're not going to possess it. And so as to the question of why his descendants are going to be mistreated, why it has to be 400 years, all he gets is that the sin of the Amorites is not yet ready. The sin of some of the inhabitants of the land that you're currently living around seems to be that it's going to get progressively worse, but it's not at a state of full evil and completion yet. And so why does God need to wait for them to be fully evil? Why does it all have to happen? The answer I can only provide is the one that we've talked about um, that we said was part of the theme of this whole Abram series, this whole Abraham series. And that is that God is working for ultimate good even if we don't see it. Even in the confusion of the Exodus story and why the Israelites had to be slaved and why there had to be plagues and why there had to be the completion of the Amorite sin, when we don't have the answers, sometimes we just have to believe that God is working for the ultimate good, even when we can't see it. And if this is something you have questions about, I invite you to bring that to God this week during your prayer time and quiet time and say, what was up with the Exodus, God? What was up with having all the Canaanites be killed by the Israelites? Because God is big enough to handle it and will maybe even give you some answers you didn't have before. This is all good and hunky-dory. What I, I really wanted to talk about is the next part because it's super weird and super gross. So, let's go to it. Yeah. yeah, weird and gross. That was how people talked about me in grade school. So That's why I like it. Okay, so again, we're going to be skipping around a little bit. But uh, in Genesis 15, starting verse 7 to 11, he all, so this is uh, God. After he shows him the stars, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Uh, but Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And so God says, I'm going to show you how you can know. Bring me a heifer, cow, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So Abram brought all of these to him. He cuts them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Then we skip over what we just read about the, the deep sleep and the thick and dreadful dream. Verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cabanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Kirkishites, and Jebusites. Weird and gross. Kyle, can you hit that slide, please? How many people know what this is? Pinky swear. Pinky promise, pinky swear. What does it mean? Yeah, if I don't do it, you can have my pinky. Yeah. If you, if you, <laughs> that is basically it. If the reason kids pinky promise each other is the, the original meaning behind it was that uh, 
what you're saying is if I don't complete my end of the bargain, if I don't give you my fruit gushers at lunchtime, you can break my pinky or you can cut it off or however you want to interpret that pinky. But basically, the pinky will no longer be a functioning unit of your hand anymore if you don't fulfill your promise. Um, Amanda and I do pinky promises over everything from our wedding vows to making sure that I don't forget yogurt when I go to the grocery store. So, um, so far, yeah, <laughs> so far we're okay, but if you ever see me with a broken pinky, hopefully it's just because I forgot yogurt, but, <laughs> um, uh, this weird animal ritual is a Canaanite pinky promise, okay? Um, yeah, you can go. You'll notice that God doesn't tell Abram to cut the animals in two. He just says, bring these animals to me. But Abram seemed to already know what to do with them because this is a cultural thing that's going on. So he cuts the animals in two. Um, and then what happens when you line them up in rows like this? You can see it on that slide there. You get a nice little chasm, a nice little river of blood that flows in between them. I, when I used to teach this passage to college students, I would bring in a bunch of stuffed animals and we'd cut them in two and let the stuffing, <laughs> let the stuffing just make a little pathway for us. Um, yeah, so you have the entrails, you have the blood just forming this sidewalk of guts and blood in the middle. And what is supposed to happen in this ritual is that both parties are making an agreement together. Usually it's over land, but um, you know, it could be, I'm going to give you fruit gushers at recess, and you'll give me your what's another good snack? Twizzlers. Twizzlers. Your Twizzlers. So, alright, so I have to give my fruit gushers, and whoever, Joey, you're going to give me your Twizzlers. So, we stand at opposite ends of this guts river flow thing. And we walk through it together, passing one another, and through the blood, or getting our feet all bloody and yucky. What we're saying is that if I don't give you my fruit gushers, you can do to me what we just did to these animals. What you're saying is, or if you don't give me your Twizzlers, I can do to you what you, we just did to these animals, right? The reason for it is because it's a very visceral ceremony that is going to stick in your mind to be like, you aren't going to go home and be like, what did I say I would do for, uh, <laughs> for Joey? Um, you, you got the sight, you got the smell. You know, Abram has to scare the vultures away because they're coming to eat these animals. It's a sensual reminder for it, um, that you made a covenant with someone, that you made a promise. And so what happens in our text Abram cuts the animals in two and he waits and he gets this dream. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire cloud and blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land. This is God's pinky promise to Abram that the things he has said is going to come true. That Abram is going to have descendants from his own flesh. That the land is going to belong to his people. 
And what's not necessarily stated, but is inferred, is that Abram is supposed to be promising servitude to this God, that he's forsaking his pagan gods and going to be serving Yahweh alone. But what's interesting about this, from what I just described, is what a normal covenant ritual looks like. Only God went through. Abram, terrified from his thick and dreadful darkness vision, terrified that this, this, this torch that seems to represent God is there. Abram does not go through. God seems to be taking on himself the burden of both sides of the covenant. That the descendants and the land are going to belong to Abram's people. And that Abram is going to serve God faithfully. And so what happens if either side of this covenant is broken then? You can do to God what has been done to these animals. And a lot of, like, rabbinical scholars struggle with this passage because they say, well, maybe they were doing something different that we don't, you know, this is how Canaanites did it, but maybe this is supposed to be something different because how can you do to God what is the violence that has been enacted on those animals? And why would God make a promise like that? Do you guys know? <laughs> Has violence ever been done against God in human history? If we're Christians, we say yes, right? Right? Just as those animals were slaughtered as a sign of the covenant fulfillment, part of the reason Jesus was slaughtered was to remind us of God's promises and faithfulness. Crucifixion is a horrible, bloody, terrible event. But yet, in God's kingdom that is reversed from ours, it's actually a glorious, hopeful promise. When Jesus dies, and he takes sin with him, and he comes back from the dead, he's saying that death and sin have no longer any power in this world. That evil does not have the final say. And so just like Abraham could remember that visceral moment of seeing the torch and the fire pot going through the bloodied, broken animals, we can look to the mangled, destroyed body of Christ and remember that God is faithful to his promises. And that is something we need because God has made a lot of big promises that just like Abram, we can be 10 years, you know, the equivalent, metaphorical equivalent of 10 years following God and saying, you promised all these things, God, and where are they? I've been serving you for 10 years. I've been turning away the king of Sodom's offer. I've been doing, I left my home, but everything you said was going to happen has not happened yet. How can I be sure? That can be the way being a Christian feels sometimes too. These are excerpts from Isaiah 65. These promises were made at least 500 years before Jesus was even born. They're kind of tiny, so I'll read them for everybody. But this, this is God speaking through the mouth of Isaiah. See, 
I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard no more. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. He goes on to say how the wicked are going to be judged for their evil deeds, that those who oppress and put down the poor and do evil are going to get judgment. And this was 500 years before Jesus, and we're 2,023 years after him. When is this promise going to be fulfilled, God? When is the new heavens and earth going to come? When is death going to be ended forever? When is there going to be no more sin and injustice? When is the wolf and the lamb going to lie down together? When the promises of God seem slow in coming, we're invited to look back to Jesus, to the crucifixion, because it's no longer like a threat, you know, like a pinky promise is kind of a covenant of threat. But Jesus on the cross is a covenant of promise. It's that foretaste of saying, if Jesus really died, and if he really came back from the dead, if he really ascended into heaven to sit next to God on, at God's right hand, then everything's going to be okay. Then even though in this world now we see the violence and destruction that we've experienced in our town this week, we experience medical debts, there's war going on, there's our own personal struggles and sexual brokenness and uh, you know, families falling apart and infidelity and greed and cheating, that if all that is happening now, Jesus on the cross is still a reminder that everything's going to be okay. That even when we can't see it, God is working for ultimate good. Amen. And if we need that reminder, we can say, I need that reminder, God. How will I know that you're going to do what you say? And God will show us. God loves us and God wants us to just be in relationship with us. So he's not going to turn you away from your doubts or your fears or your complaints or your concerns, but he's going to meet you where you are. And I think ultimately he's going to point you back to Jesus. And so this week, this month, this year, when the hard things come, when things make you question the existence of God or whether God is real because there's so much brokenness and evil in this world, when you doubt or you just feel sad or hurt, I want you to remember that when you are doubting God, when you, it's hard to believe God, look to Christ, who was God, and who died and rose from the dead, defeating it forever, defeating sin forever, so that one day everything will be made right, and the best part is we will be with him. Amen. Amen. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.